Without further ado, uh, a real pleasure to welcome back to the museum Lisa Opinionese in conversation with Adam Phillips, both very well known to the to the museum, and probably many of you have actually heard them speak here before. Um, they are both very supportive of, of, of the museum and have spoken here on a number of occasions. Uh, Lisa, as you will be aware, is uh, a writer of both fiction and non-fiction, a broadcaster, cultural commentator, and was for many years the chair of the Freud Museum. So we have a long and very happy association. Um, Adam, again, a practicing psychoanalyst and a writer, uh, hugely admired uh, for his, his writing, um, as they both are, and to say that um, both the book that's under discussion tonight and other works by Lisa and Adam are both down in the uh, bookshop, uh, and please do go down after the talk and, and you know buy either tonight's the subject of tonight's talk or any others and I think you're both happy to sign books afterwards as well. And we're you? signing each other's. You're signing each other's, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but as you know, the subject of tonight's talk is particularly is Lisa's latest book, Everyday Madness on Grief, Anger, Loss and Love. Um, searing and very personal examination of grief and loss. And um, I think... I'll now hand over for what I know is going to be a really interesting conversation between uh, these two. And we're very pleased and, and grateful that you've agreed to come and talk here tonight. So thank you to both of you. Thank you. We are going to start with Lisa reading a bit from the book. Then we're going to affect to have a conversation, which will begin with me asking Lisa a few questions, and we will take it from there. After about 45 minutes, we'll open it up to the audience. So. That's it, Adam? I just read? You, you just read. <laughs> okay. Um, this, as some of you will know, is a book about um, grieving in the first instance, and... Um, an attempt to anatomize and perhaps also get um, close to um, the experience of grief, which totally surprised me, I have to say. I mean, not only death surprised me, but grief surprised me. Um, and um, the emotions that grew out of that that I explore in the rest of the book, anger and loss and uh, eventually also love. So this is not the prologue, but the actual beginning. One, <laughs> I'll put my glasses on. I'm not sure I really like reading this because it brings me back to a time that I'm no longer in, but still. The small translucent bottle of shampoo outlived him. It was the kind you take home from hotels and distant places. For over a year, it had sat on the shower shelf where he had left it. I looked at it every day. I couldn't bring myself to move it or use it. When I finally picked it up, it was caked and slightly clammy to the touch, like perspiring, not quite healthy skin. I put my glasses on to make out the indistinct print on the front of the curve. For the first time, I could see that next to the stylized palm tree, vanishing letters spelled out memory of senses. I put the bottle back on the shelf quickly, 
though I had rid the house of bags full of clothes, unopened packs of tobacco, wires that belonged to defunct machines and some of the other random leavings of life, I somehow couldn't chuck that tiny bottle. Superstition. We all know the dead inhabit select objects, even when we might also believe that they've gone to meet their maker or join the elements in a field or river or their everlasting souls have travelled up to heaven to be judged by a supreme court at which angels bear witness to their deeds, good and bad, and eleven months of purgatory await. Superstition, from the Latin over plus stand, a presence stands over us, one whom we fear or who might just bring us luck, or perhaps is in surveillance, that presence compounds security and fear. Cicero, that hoary old philosopher who, according to one of my schoolteachers, had intoned something about diseases of the mind being more common and more pernicious than those of the body, had considered the word to be a derivation of superstitiosi, literally those who are left over, the survivors or descendants. It is they who must perform the funeral rites for their dead. It is they who need superstition. One of my superstitions as a performer of funeral rites seems to lie in a miniature bottle of shampoo, latterly found to bear the name, memory, of senses. Had I unwittingly taken in that name well before noticing it? None of my senses had been behaving particularly well in the fourteen months and rising since he had died. My sight and hearing had all but abandoned the world. They were overrun, smothered by the assault from within. Maybe I had something in common with that other adult mourner, Hamlet, whose father's untimely death, alongside his mother's way of grieving, curtailed too swiftly and sexually from his perspective as a son, sets up a fury in him that some term mad. He feels surveyed by the state, by his father's ghost, and most of all, by his own watchful, overwrought self. I think that interviewing you about such a personal book may reflect something about the difficulty of writing it, as in, I think there's going to be a relationship here between tact and evasiveness, I suppose. And so I feel like any question I might ask you might be, is going to be potentially excessive, and so I rely on you to act accordingly. I'll pretend I don't know you. <laughs> okay, I won't pretend I don't know you. Okay. Why were you surprised by grief? I think I was surprised because I had assumed um, in reading other people um, and perhaps had I ever thought about it? No, it must have been an act of reading and having lived through it with my parents, Mm. I guess, with my mother in particular, um, that what I would experience would be an overwhelming sense of um, um, tribute (laughs) and loss and Sorrow, I think sorrow and sadness was what I thought would be the basic emotion. Um, And I thought all of that would be terrible, but I didn't think it would be terrible in the specificity of the ways in which it became terrible for me. Um, And, of course, that question is linked to why on earth I've written this book. Um, Is it? (laughs) I would have thought so, yeah. And the answer to that one is I don't really know, except that um, my sense of writing, I think, uh, something 
I perhaps learnt from John Berger, or maybe John Berger consolidated it for me, is that it's um, writing allows you to get close to an experience. I'm one of these people who doesn't remember my everyday life very well, and I, I just sort of throw myself into things and get on with them and act. Um, and while I'm writing, I'm a completely other person. And when I'm writing, I actually do get close to the uh, experiences and to the emotions that I may have had. And um, the sets of emotion in this case were so startling and, and, and um, so close to what I thought of as madness or had, in my studies and my research for other books, had seemed to be the experience of madness that I needed somehow to, to mm. get close to it and understand why I was there. Because mm-hmm. you make interesting references in the book to yourself as a writer. Um, And there's one very striking one, which is at the end of the preface, where you say, I hope my children will forgive my exposure. I've tried to be circumspect. Their mother is a reliable enough person, but when it comes to writing, the writer steps in. What does that mean? That means that there was a war with what I might say and what I might evade saying, um, which is ever the case when you're writing in yeah. a personal voice. Yeah. Uh, it was more the case here because it's n- my children are not small, they're adults and, and uh, far more accomplished probably in many ways than I am. And I didn't want in any way to, to uh, affect their vision of, um, in one case, the father, and another case, the stepfather, but nonetheless the very active father. And I say this in what I think is all honesty. This book is not about John. Um, In that sense, you know, everything that I've written about John elsewhere is the tribute to John. This book is about the griever. (laughs) It's, in that sense, very selfishly, perhaps, about me. And even that me is not something that can be, I think, totally shared with children. I mean, you know... One one of the ways in which I approach the experience rather than the subject of the book, although it became the subject of the book, is that I I grew very close to my mother um, during this experience of grieving. grieving. Um, And I had not particularly admired or been happy with her when, I think it's 20 years before, my father had died and, and I had watched her through this grief. In fact, it was a very embattled and battling relationship with her um, over the loss of the father and I very much didn't want to have that with my children but nonetheless I could see where certain of the dynamics um, could be replicated so in a sense this book is also about hauntings I mean in in, yeah. in the way that um, you and I have talked about before um, I've forgotten what the question was do you think oh. you, don't need, you don't need to remember do you think that the writer in you is therefore more ruthless? Yes, probably. The, the writer in me, whatever that person is, I mean, I, d- I don't think you can actually separate them, except that um, I think, you know, it's a ridiculous word, but I mean, when you try and get close to an experience, you're actually trying, to, in a certain measure, to be uh, both honest. I don't, I don't really like the word honest, but it's the closest word I can think of now with with um, what it is that you're describing um, 
and with yourself. And I probably haven't been honest with myself throughout because one can't be. I mean, I'd, you know, I, you'd, if I were analysing this book, and I might in a few years' time, who knows if I'm still around and still have a mind, <laughs> I might sit down and say, look, Lisa, actually, I can see in your prose that you're, you know, you're, 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 you're playing around here. That's not quite, perhaps, exactly the case. But while I was doing it, I felt I was doing it. I was being slightly ruthless because I, I allowed things to slip, which didn't put me, certainly in the best light and perhaps didn't put John in the best light and I did talk about our separation and um, not in any graphic detail but I mentioned it and um, because that too was important to the way in which the morning uh, took me over and I've never thought because I'm actually a very ordinary person I mean I've, I'm, I, I'm not you know, particularly extreme in most of my manifestations I've always thought that my experience is very like other people's experience and um, and therefore, you know, one uses the word grief, but you don't actually have a phenomenology of it. Yeah. You you don't know in what it consists. When people talk about haunting, I mean, it's only after I when I was rereading this book that I realized, oh yes, of course, this is a journey into the underworld. I mean, this is Orpheus in search of Eurydice. Um, I hadn't thought of that while I was writing it. Otherwise, I might have taken on the form and yeah. used it. Yeah. Um, so, so this kind of contemporary phenomenology of mourning without yeah. having recourse to ancient myths, even Odysseus's yeah. journey into the underworld, um, you know, all these um, literary and, and um, mythic ways of describing this experience are in fact much closer to everyday truths, truths that very ordinary people like me experience than what I had assumed um, even at my rather old age, <laughs> and I have been through other deaths, but not this particular one. Mm. Mm. I want to make a link, actually, between Losing the Dead, a very, very extraordinary book that Lisa wrote, which you may have read, and this also extraordinary book, because I think that there are, in a way, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to speak on your behalf here, but even as a writer, I'm sure there's a sense in which it's always a work in progress when writing one book. This book seems particularly to be a kind of precursor, not simply because of the title, but because it is about something comparable. And one thing struck me, if you don't mind, I just want to read a bit of this, and it'll seem oblique, but I hope it won't be eventually. This is a very, to me, very extraordinary paragraph. Before I reached my teens, I don't recall my parents or their friends' stories ever mentioning the word Holocaust. The blanket use of the term to cover the entirety of the horrific experience of the Jews in the war only came with the late 60s. Its use emerged out of a tangled process of memorialization which inevitably contained not a little contemporary politics. Its tendency was, and still is, to merge all wartime experience into the one overwhelming experience of the camps. The stories my parents and their friends told were both more particular and more diverse. They wore the jagged marks of the individual memory which often won't fit neatly into the grand historical narrative. Once that second collectively sanctioned narrative of an iconic holocaust had achieved coherence and was paid tribute to, once they were all publicly recognised and memorialised as victims, their own storytelling began to fizzle out. Now, I mean, I think that's very, very interesting and striking. The other thing that seems to link it everyday madness, is that, of course, we have lived in a, we're living in a period in which more has 
been written than ever before about mourning. I mean, mourning has been memorialised. You can... There are experts on mourning. There are a thousand books on mourning. And I wondered, really, in light of this book, which seems to be very, very idiosyncratic, what the effect on you was, insofar as you know it, of all the stuff about mourning on your actual personal singular experience? You mean the books that I read? The books or, that you read and in some sense partly referred to. And, of course, it's in the air, too. Mm. How to mourn, what to do, what you should be feeling when, etc. I've never been very good at, at feeling what I'm meant to be feeling, or at least I quite often feel at odds with what I'm meant to be feeling. Um, what else to say? <laughs> what was the effect of the literature? Well, I think maybe it was the literature that made me want to write this yeah. as a writer rather than somebody who's lived it because it didn't ring um, quite true. It was too programmatic. It was too um, encased in, in, you know, ten-point plans or four-step plans, oh, actually, oh. with... with uh, mourning and bereavement. I mean, part of this is the problem, if you like, of of, of having uh, a therapeutic industry, yeah, so that absolutely. things actually do come in in packages. And then, if you like self-help books, if you don't live up to what is, um, you know, already been told you. In other words, if if the mourning doesn't fit within the time frame that it's supposed to. Well, it could be harder than ever to mourn now, couldn't it? Yes, because yes. it's prescribed. Because we know what it is. Um, so. Exactly. And I don't, I mean, I don't know that I call what I went through mourning. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I use the book no, very don't. much in the book. No, Do I? Don't. No, you don't. That's no, interesting. No, no, I hadn't no. even thought of that. No. Okay. No. No. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> I feel I'm on the couch here. Um, why did I not use the word mourning? <laughs> well, maybe that's what it was. Maybe, maybe I didn't feel that I was actually, while writing this, yet beginning to mourn. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it comes back to me what Homi Baba said. We, we were talking before we came in here that um, a, a literary critic or a cultural critic called uh, Homi Baba had written to me about the book, which he found striking. And he had said something which I wasn't sure I understood. And it refers to what we're saying now, which is that he didn't use the word mourning either. But he said, in a sense, this book is in part, or the process of mourning is in part, about laying down memories for the future. Um, now, I don't know if you think that's interesting, but, but maybe, in a way, um, laying down memories for the future is what we try to do with mourning, which is why we want to do it in the right way. Because if we do it in the wrong way, we'll be robbed both of the memories we have of the past with the person that we've always been with, and we won't have anything in store. <laughs> <laughs> for the next stages of life. I mean, maybe he means something like that. I'm not sure. You can help me later. Mm. Help me, Adam. <laughs> well, it seems, I mean, it's tricky, this, because it's a, it's a compelling idea, but we can't lay down memories. I mean, the sense of we might, for example, give our children experiences that we hope will be good memories, but we know that memory is very idiosyncratic. So we can't lay down memories, but we can, we can record things, and then it'll be like, it'll basically be the evidence of the dream day. It'll be the stuff that dreams are woven out of in very idiosyncratic ways, presumably. But nevertheless, it feels as though, certainly reading this and reading Losing the Dead, that there's something very, very powerfully compelling about these recoveries 
in both senses of the term. I mean, you talk in Losing the Dead about recovering something for your mother, effectively, as a way of reconstructing a continuity, something like that. In this, it seems to me, as you say, there's something else going on, because it's almost like losing an internal continuity and recovering it, as in, I don't want to speak here on your behalf, but it's as though the revelation of this, so to speak, is the rage. And you say at one point that you haven't written about rage, you've written a lot about madness, but very little about rage. And apart from the, the obvious point, you didn't write about it because you were frightened by it or whatever, why do you think you haven't written about rage, and why do you think it hits you like this here? Well, in a sense, the middle part of the book is, is a, an attempt yeah. to anatomize uh, why I may have somehow omitted writing about it. I mean, yeah. I have in a, a little bit in, in Trials of Passion, uh, but that was always to do with love and, and the rage that follows upon rejection. Um, I'm frightened of rage. Yeah. I mean, that's the simple answer. I'm yeah. afraid of anger. And it's not just my own anger. I'm afraid of everybody's anger. Yeah. Uh, the middle part of the book is, is about, in part about the current political situation, which is enmeshed in the politics of emotion, the dominant one of which is to me, seems to me to be anger. And I have, you know, I document many instances of what went on in my life at that time, um, which are about this explosion of anger in the civil sphere as well as in the uh, political one if you think of Trump and if you think of, of the actual machinations amongst the politicians over Brexit. Um, and despite the fact that I'm very interested in extreme states and a lot of my work has been to do mm. with yeah. trying to explore them, yeah, exactly. I'm actually very frightened of, of um, I'm more frightened of anger, which seems to me to be a short, sharp and dangerous um, Explosion on the one hand, but also a deep and abiding resentment, which probably nothing can quite assuage, and um, or nothing that's going to last um, in assuaging it. I mean, I do, you know, but if you if you think politically, resentment could be made good if you know everybody had a change of mood and jobs were good and security and money and the frills of life were there, but. For people who, who are um, filled with it and who have it in any case, there will always be other objects to um, uh, feed that, um, what do I mean, inflame that resentment yet yeah. again, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I think it's an early childhood Absolutely. formation yeah. in many ways. Not that that, as to quote you, has to be the case forever, mm -hmm. but, but sometimes it is. Um, um, what was the second part of that question about rage? Do you mind if I just ask you to go yes, on? Yes, you go on. I mean, I think just interrupt me all the time. Oh, no, I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> um, I think it would be strange not to be frightened of rage. But what I was wondering is whether, I mean, given we're in the Freud Museum, uh, everybody in this room presumably knows that if they're frightened of something, it's because it's also alluring and potentially pleasurable. Not only that, but also that. And I wonder if because I got the sense in the book, this is a little psychoanalytic, but I got the sense in the book that one of the things you seem to be suggesting was that rage is like an attempt at omnipotence in the face of loss. That there's a f an experience of resourcelessness that is apparently recovered by being enraged. As though, a bit like Sartre says, there's a magical thought in rage. If you get cross enough, the world will be as you want it to be. And I suppose I, the book left me wondering, given your unequivocally against rage, whether you think that there are... As it no, were, I'm not. 
Well, there are, there are little hiatuses. There right? are little hiatuses, but they're, but they're pretty minimal. Yes. I mean, rage does get a bad press here, and yet it's quite clear politically rage is rather important because, of course, it's a registering of frustration mm. and deprivation. So in the writing of the book, did your feeling about rage change? Oh. I got rid of some of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm still, I'm still afraid of it. I'm still yeah, afraid of yeah. rage. I do think it has its political uses, yeah. and I'm not against those political uses at all times. But I personally, faced by it, mm. am frightened, and I do revert to being um, a child, um, and and. A I want to run. Child. A frightened child. Mm. And I want to run and I want to hide. Mm. I, I'm not... Um, sometimes, you know, in the real world, I'll, I'll stand up to it. Yeah, but yeah. nonetheless, the, the first feeling is of one of wanting to run and hide. Um, I, th- I think this is probably also, and I bring sexual politics in here, to do with the fact that I'm a woman. <laughs> and um, I think in certain kinds of circumstances. Women do not have a very good experience of anger and, and rage um, and um, want to hide from it basically or, or just to shun it, to get rid of it, not to utilize it. I know that it, it's a trope of the women's movement which I've been through and indeed of need to now that, that you know this venting of this anger is a good thing. Um, it can be a good thing but it may not get you the goods that you want out of it, uh, I suspect. I mean, I think um, you may get some of those goods perhaps more um, effectively for yourself and indeed for the community of women with other kinds of argument and other kinds of action. I'm I'm not sure that the explosive one is the best one, but it it does have, particularly in the age of Twitter, as we see, uh, a, a useful side. I don't know, but yes, I've, I'm not good at. Um, I mean, I'm not it, good at the good side of rage. It is. It is a bind. This isn't, it? and you refer to in everyday madness to the to its origins in infancy and so on, because as adults we can be, as it were, against rage. But the question is, what do we do? Because we are enraged. In other words, what what if it, if it is a traumatic experience, what can it be transformed into? Or if you think in terms of sexual politics, are there ways of bringing up girls that make rage more representable, more transformable, more whatever. In other words, can it be circulated in a way that isn't only terrifying? Absolutely. You see, I, I, I'm a great believer in argument. And, you know, I like having verbal <laughs> confrontation. It's not that I'm afraid of confrontation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, the sheer explosiveness of rage, which to me is beyond language. In that sense, it is, you know, a madness. It's a short yeah. madness, um, as Seneca says. And... and, and um, in it, and violence quite often can come out of it. It's the violence I'm afraid of. I don't mind the confrontation of ideas or indeed of emotions. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stand up to that, but, but the rest I'm, I am afraid of, and I haven't... Writing this book hasn't helped me with it particularly. Yeah. I would still run away from some of the scenes um, in the book yeah, yeah. and go and cry, probably. Yeah, and there are very vivid disruptions in Losing the Dead of your father's rage. Mm. I suppose the difficulty is... I don't and my brother's. Yes, which, brother, which, yes, which for me, in some ways, was, was, yeah. was quite... Um, probably even more powerful, because in some ways I saw... At various points in my life, I saw more of him. Yeah, yeah, literally. 
Because if you can't bear rage, you can't bear frustration. In other words, it's a very difficult intolerance. Why do you say that? Well, because... I don't think that's right. Do you not know? Go on. <laughs> no, what do you think? Well, you, no, tell me your because, and then I may well, follow Well, my, my because would be that, um, that rage, at its most extreme, turns into frustration. Or, or at, frustration, at its most traumatic, becomes rage. I, beyond representation, becomes something you evacuate. So that there's going to be a link. If it's true that this, as it were, begins in infancy and childhood, there's always going to be a link, I assume, somewhere in one's mind between the experience of frustration and explosive rage. And one thing probably everybody in this room agrees on is that in order to grow up, whatever that means, it's about partly the capacity to contain frustration with a view to making one's wants and needs known. So that, it w- so that the, risk, the only risk would be that if one is too averse to rage, one might then try and preempt experience of frustration in order not to feel the rage. And then you would lose out on something. That's very interesting. Um, my, my, my first response to it, and I'm probably completely wrong about this, is that I've never experienced frustration as being linked to anger. I mean, I do feel frustration. Yeah. You know, I think everybody does, and I live with it. Um, um, I mean, frustration in writing, you know, quite often in, yeah. on that simple level of writing, but, but in everyday life too, many things that you would like just don't happen. And maybe what I do with it, rather than converting frustration to rage, is either I divert paths. Yeah. I mean, I'll go in other directions. Or... Um, I resign myself. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed my pain to resignation. Absolutely, in, <laughs> God. In, in this book. But I think resignation is a very um, underloved virtue <laughs> in, in the 21st century and indeed the late 20th. Um, and I've never thought it was a terrible... I, and I don't mean this in terms of sexual politics. I mean this you know, for men as much as for women. I think life never offers all the things that we would want of it. And um, although one wants to carry on wanting it of life, one also needs to be able to live with the consequences of it not giving everything. And so resignation is my... I mean, you call it frustration, and I might call it frustration, which leads to resignation rather than... um, Rage and, and the rage may come because I actually don't have a very deep sense of entitlement. This may have to, this may be completely personal and to do with my own um, parental history or the history of immigration or, or actually always feeling incredibly lucky compared to a lot of the people around me who seem to me to be lucky too, but they don't feel lucky, <laughs> whereas I feel quite lucky. And, and therefore I don't... Um, I don't feel I have to, you know, grasp entitlement. I feel, my mm. God, look at all the stuff I've already had. <laughs> but one thing that's very vivid in this book, and actually in Losing the Dead, but it's very vivid here, is the frustration involved in loss. That when someone dies, you can no longer have access to them. And you lose both access to them and your wished-for access to them when they were alive. So you lose the dream of the possibility of the relationship and the relationship. And you are resourceless. It's a lot to deal with. Absolutely. One way or another. And I, I mean, I, you know, 
that's what I'm trying to, to, to kind of yeah. come to grips with in some way or describe in some way. Um, it is a great deal to lose, and, and you're losing the other who's been there for as long as memory can provide, but you're also losing that part of yourself that was so enmeshed with that person and, and um, is no longer there as it was. I mean, it, it's become something quite other in the process, or, or it's gone. Um, yeah, I mean... What what do you make of that? I mean, what 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 do you think is lacking in this book? I mean, there are many things that are lacking, but I'm what, not, yeah, what I, in particular yeah. do you I'm think not, is well, lacking? I'm not sure. I, I I didn't think of the book like that. I wasn't. I didn't read it with a sense of what was being omitted at all. I mean, when you asked me the question, I thought I remember the thing Winnicott said, which was somewhere where he says, "There's no such thing as separation. There's only the fantasy of separation," and it seems to be a very interesting remark. Because um, it would seem to me that, that, I mean, I was going to say to you, what's the big deal about loss? Why, why is the culture elegiac? Why does it matter if people die? Now, there are obvious answers to that. But one bit of this is that we go on having relationships with people in our minds. It's not only about pal- palpable physical contact and presence. Because people, as you say in this book, are part of us in different sorts of ways. And it seems to me identification, for example, and it's not really a very good word, but it's a very strong picture of the way in which we're having relationships with people, whether they're present or absent. And indeed, they're often at their most intense and intimate when people are absent. That's right. But I think one of the reasons that that I found the period of, of grieving so difficult was that the relationship that I had um, with John um, was a very punishing one. In my mind, and and what it set up was was was. It's not. It's. I mean, it felt psychotic at the time, but but it was this this extraordinary mixture of of um, agitation and and you know sort of flagellation, um, and everything that was. A, a whole lot of things which I don't particularly want to talk about now, but were, which were put in place to to diminish me. And as I thought about this dis- diminishment. Um, and it only came after I had written the book that I thought about it, although I think there maybe I say some of it in the book somewhere. Mm. I mean, the part of this diminishment was simply that I was in a state of loss. Yeah. It wasn't that you know the other was being hideous to me or, or angry at me or, or, I mean, all these other things, but, but that actually I had been um, severed. I'd lost things. Things had yeah. gone wrong. Uh, and in the loss. Um, so that's, I mean, to me, that's what loss is about. You lose a part of yourself. You lose the other. You lose everything, all your daily habits, um, which are centered on the other person. Um, you lose also your other, the parent, the other parent yeah, in a relationship. Um, uh, which is not nothing. I mean, you, you know, when, when there are two of you and you, it's all fine, then that's okay. But when there isn't the one, you do realize that there is actually a substantive yeah. loss. Um, and what, why are we elegiac about it? Well, this book is not an elegy, although in some ways, of course, it is. But, but no, I agree, it isn't. Uh, an elegy would be about paying tribute to yeah. the other, which I could possibly now do. But I couldn't while I was living it, or I certainly couldn't on 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 
um, a daily basis when I was alone. All the acts of tribute took place, all the social acts of tribute took place. But, mm. And while they were taking place, it was, it was you know, good that they were there. But what I was feeling while they were taking place was not tribute. But do you think um, another way of saying this would be that in a relationship, there's a kind of cumulative unconscious adaptation to someone? And that when they die, you may become gradually aware of the adaptations you've made that you actually didn't want to make or felt you had to make in order to sustain the relationship. And so what returns is an awareness of the cost, so to speak, of the relationship without the person being there so there's no redress. So you are left then with, as it were, your problems, your preoccupation in relation to the other person, and you're marooned. And you can see why you'd want to... Shit that out. No, no, that, that, sound, that sounds absolutely yeah. right. Um, and the rage is at yourself as well as at the other. It's yeah. at both. Yeah. It's it's you know yeah. about your own adaptations and the various adaptations you made in being with the other and in being in the world yes. uh, with them um, and um, at them for you know putting you in that place yeah. and for oh. dying. I mean, the rage yeah. is yes. also about the very fact of death. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it, there's no one to argue with because they're not going to come back and argue back at you even if you make up the voice. You say they're still there, but then they're not really because I argue against myself far more effectively than John ever did. <laughs> but can you also not imagine what John would say? I don't mean yeah. it's the same. I just mean it's a transcription of something you lived. Yes, I can in certain instances, mm. but but um, I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to talk about this here, but but the, the very beginning of this book is about you know the 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 kind of formative aspect of last words, and um, since his last words to me were not great because he was in delirium perhaps or because perhaps because he meant them as my father's last words to my mother were not great <laughs> you'll have to read the book to find out why <laughs> um, those things do stay with you because they seem magical at the time yeah. I mean they do they are the kind of superstitious weight of things we put a, we put a great emphasis yeah. on endings in our yeah. lives yeah. Um, not necessarily on mourning yeah. or on elegies but on the very fact of ending and how important endings are as writers as, as you know the end of marriages the end of friendships all of that um, colors what came before and um, part of my anger was you know, at him as well as yeah. at me. Yeah. And so my arguments with him that went, then went on were an attempt to somehow you know, get through that mire, but also also to say, um, come back, argue with me properly. Yeah. You know, don't just sit there with your yeah. stupid last words. <laughs> yeah. You know, come back, say something else. <laughs> and also you sustain the relationship by going... Of by course, going and it's a way of sustaining yeah. the relationship. Yeah. But, but Adam, what do, what do you think? I mean, if I say to you, what is grief? How would you characterize it? Well, I it? would say I, I really don't know that it's very singular, that there's a sort of preemptive distraction in all the stuff we're told. Now, one of the reasons I think this is fabulous is because we need more books like this and no book, I mean, there, there can't be other books like this, but comparable singular accounts of the experience as opposed to programmatic prescriptions about what mourning is because mourning is everybody's experience of it. 
I'm temperamentally suspicious of the allure of loss and of a kind of elegiac relationship to reality, if you see what I mean. I think there's something very strange about a preoccupation with what's lost. I don't mean that we should be thinking about what's gained. I think the whole language is wrong, strange. It would be like believing that ageing is the loss of youth. Mm. seems to me a very extraordinary, bizarre idea. So that I would want to, not that I can do it, but I would want to change the vocabulary so that something, as you have in your title, as every day and as ordinary and uh, uh, something that we all know about, actually, is such a big deal. It's like being traumatised by breathing. Now, of course, sometimes we are traumatised by breathing. But we're not traumatised by having two arms most of the time unless we lose one. So that but I, you see, I never suspected that I would be... No, I never realised that, but that's why one of the reasons this is fa fabulous, because it's about being surprised by grief, as you said. And it would seem to me that, I would imagine, would be a version of everybody's experience. In other words, one might be surprised about how little grief one feels. One might be surprised by being released. One might be surprised by being enraged. But the repertoire would be infinite mm. and very singular through with one's history and one's experience and the relationship. But I, I you know, and I, I, agree, I agree with you completely, and I think it's there in the book too, that yeah. the language of loss is, is um, and, and the emotions that come from that, the particular kinds of nostalgia, the political nostalgia, yeah. the personal, are, are, are just riveted with lies. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's not a very um, useful um, set of feelings that we can use yeah. for the everyday. Yeah. It doesn't substantiate us. It doesn't do us any good. It, it's a kind of... Um, there, there's a kind of wallowing in yeah. it. It's a very, and it's a very romantic and sentimentalized yeah. set of emotions. Yeah. Um, on the other hand... Sorry, it's, it's like the thing Wilde said about sentimentality, which is it's unearned emotion. Mm. And I think there's always a risk of there being lots of unearned emotion around because it's been preemptively provided for us by the culture. We have to be aware of the time. Really? Yeah. We haven't said um, very much before yet. I, before <laughs> I open this up to the audience, um, is there a question you'd like to answer that I haven't asked you? Oh, um, well, you told me there, your first question was going to be, why did I call it everyday madness? So I thought about this. <laughs> Is that what those notes are? <laughs> okay. And then you forgot to okay. ask it of me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just remembered. There was no other question. <laughs> Lisa, why is this book called Everyday Madness? <laughs> well, I no longer know, <laughs> now that we've had this talk. Um, Is it an allusion to the psychopathology of everyday life? There was, there was a little bit of that. There's a lot of illusion. I've, originally, I was thinking of calling it ordinary madness. Yeah. Uh, but then I thought that was a little too much like ordinary vices yeah. or ordinary, uh, Judith Sklar's yeah. um, Ordinary Vices, yeah. which is a wonderful book, and I wouldn't want to pretend to that. Um, but, but, but also, um, I wanted it to be a kind of phenomenology, so the everydayness was important. Yeah. And the yeah. madness is just, that's, that's how I felt. Yeah. And it was a tribute to you. Because somewhere in here, there, there are lots of, of um, bits of Adam in here. Lots is a slight exaggeration, as you'll find if you read the book. There are lots of bits of Adam in this book, one of which is a quotation, but I probably can't find it now, um, which goes thus. I'm going to read it to have, give you the last word. Thank you. Writers as diverse as Wordsworth and Freud, as Blake and Dickens, have all hypothesized that the turbulence and intensity we feel as young children 
are what ultimately give us our life force as adults. Without this first madness, without being able to sustain this emotional lifeline to our childhoods, to our most passionate selves, our lives can begin to feel futile. So this use of madness is uh, both a good and a bad, if you like. I mean, it, it's got both sides to it. And it's also because the last part of the book is about mm-hmm. grandchildren and, yeah. and, and the scene of formation or deformation, mm-hmm. as it may have come. <laughs> Just have the, the next last word. The, um, the accounts of <coughs> grand, a grandchild and grandparenting in the book are incredibly moving and very, very heartening and inspiring, which is another reason why you should read the book. And at that point, over to you. <laughs>